In the beginning, God. These are the first four words found in the Bible. In the beginning, there was something that started everything. Because I think that we can all agree that nothing just comes from nothing. Everything comes from something. And so, therefore, we can know that the universe had a beginning. There was this point in time when everything began to work brilliantly, perfectly. Think about those four words. It's saying that somewhere out there in the nothingness, there was God. But if everything comes from something, then where's God come from? That's enough to boogle your mind up. In the beginning, God. Before anything was, God was. There is something that stirs deep inside of me that tells me that is true. And I can't explain it, but it's like sometimes I feel like I can touch the untouchable. I can see the invisible. I can believe the unbelievable. Because that day, when God becomes real for you, you too will have this quiet awareness that one day, everything that we now know will come to an end. We hold on to this promise that at the end of our journey, standing there will be the Heavenly Father who started it all. Ask yourself, do I really believe it? Do I really believe those four words? In the beginning, Uh, So we are uh, starting a new series this morning entitled The Story of God, and I thought it would be really interesting um, to look at the history of how God has revealed himself throughout history, and I think and what I hope is that in this series we're going to catch a glimpse of God in a lot of different lights and hopefully to understand him in a fuller perspective, but uh, to find out a little bit more about who he is, what we can know, and actually what we cannot know about God. Now, for those of you who know me, you know that I am a skeptic by nature, and so this faith stuff does not come naturally for me. It's been a whole lot of work all my life just to bang out my, my Christian faith, and Um, As a way to figure it out, I have really tried hard for a lot of time in my life to not believe in God. Because if you're like me, you don't want to have to rely on faith. You just want the truth, plain and simple. And so if I'm honest, 
I still have my doubts. I still doubt from time to time. And unfortunately, when I doubt, I go big. Like, I doubt the whole thing. And I constantly struggle with um, my belief in what this is all about. And most of the time, I just work it out up here with you all. <laughs> um, but, I, you know... I, it makes me crazy because I just feel like if God exists, then why didn't he just make everything like painfully clear and easy to understand? Like, why does it have to be so complicated? You know, why can't God just give a big shout out of the heavens like once a year and say, hey, y'all, I'm still here. You guys are doing just fine. Keep going. Bye-bye. And instead, he just sits up there somewhere in this uncomfortable silence. And so sometimes, I do. I doubt. My faith grows weak. And I think sometimes that we can't know. But the book of Romans disagrees with that presupposition. And God says that he has revealed himself to us, plain and simple takes a very hard stance that, hey, you should know that there is a God. There's no reason why you shouldn't know that there's a God. Because in Romans chapter 1, we believe that it's the Apostle Paul that wrote Romans. It says, verses 18 through 20, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So in this passage, the Apostle Paul is saying that it is God's position that from the beginning He has provided us with enough information to know That he exists. No question. In other words, that God really can be known. And Paul says, look, God has taken away all the excuses and hemming and hawing about our faith and whether God exists or doesn't exist. He's made it very clear that he's real. Which means stuff like the age-old argument of whether the person in Africa who has never heard of Jesus could ever really be saved. My interpretation of this passage is a resounding yes. That's just my opinion. And if you would like to debate that with me, I would invite you to email me at greg at westridgechurch.com. Make sure you write that down. No, but God has revealed himself to us enough that we can be judged based on the natural revelation of things. And it certainly seems like this is true because I follow just polls in general when it, when it deals with stuff of God and you know, one poll after another, after another through the decades, have revealed that it's only like 2.5% of the population are really atheists, who really believe 
that nothing exists, which means that the overwhelming majority, the other 97.5%, believe that there is a God in some form. Now, I'm not saying that they believe in the God of the Bible. I'm not saying that they have it figured out or have faith, but there is something in them that makes them believe that there is something more, which I think completely backs up what the Apostle Paul is saying here in Romans when he says that God has revealed himself through the, cre- through the creation to the point that you know. All you have to do is just look around. However, there is this part of that scripture that acknowledges that there are also things about God that are unknowable. And that'll be the quiet part of this series where there is a lot of unanswered questions. But in Romans 119, he says, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Well, the key word in that verse to me is the word may. What may be known or what is possible to be known about God, that has been made known to them. Which leads me to understand that While it may be known to me that there is a God, there are a whole lot of other unknowns as well. In fact, I would go as far as to say there's a whole lot more unknowns than there are knowns when it comes to God. What I actually do know about God just barely scratches the surface of the magnitude of God. And while God has given us just just enough evidence to have just enough faith, By its very definition, faith accepts the fact that there are just some things that we just don't know, and we will never know this side of heaven. But what it does clearly say is that what we can know, in the beginning, God. Before anything was, God was. God was out there somewhere in the nothingness. Now, one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible is Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, because it describes for us those first few moments before the world actually begins. And it says, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So in the beginning, something really interesting takes place. We find the Spirit of God hovering over the watery deep. But what the heck was he doing? Just hovering there. The Old Testament was originally written in the uh, Hebrew language. And the Hebrew word for hover also has the idea of brooding over something. So I like to think of it as we catch God for the very first time in deep thought about what he's going to do next. He's trying to figure out some of the very important last minute decisions that he has to make. Like, does he make our noses pop out of the front of our faces or out of the back of our heads? Right? What are all those little choices that, you know, has to get made and figured in? No idea, but it seems to me that we catch God in this moment trying to develop his strategy before the beginning of the beginning, calculating his next move. Now, also in Hebrew is the Hebrew word that is used for God here, 
which is distinct from other places in the Bible. In fact, 32 times in just Genesis chapter 1 alone, the creator is called Elohim, which is a Hebrew word that emphasizes the majesty and power of God. Almost like he is above it all and removed from creation. Every time the Bible describes God as the creator, he is called Elohim. Which is a title that says, whether you realize it or not, you are being introduced to the God who is all infinite and all powerful. Powerful enough, in fact, to be the creator, sustainer, and supreme judge of the world. God is revealing himself here to be Elohim, who is the one who is in control of the entire universe. That's some serious power. So God, through Genesis chapter 1, completes the rest of creation. And when he puts his final touches on the rest of the creation, he now turns his attention to the creation of mankind. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Now, what are the interesting words in that passage? Us? Our? What the heck is that? All of a sudden, we go from God, Elohim, singular, which is what it's been all through chapter 1, to God, the Elohim, plural, which tells us something funky's going on here, right? I mean, what happens right in the middle of the creation story is that we catch God talking to himself, like there's more than just himself, and once again, he is creating his game plan as he says, let us make man in our own image. Why is that important? Because from the very beginning, we are being introduced to a very, very complicated doctrine of God called the Trinity. Which is to say that God exists in three persons who are equal in their attributes and yet individual and distinct in who they are and what they do. We refer to the Trinity as one being, Elohim, the Godhead. And yet three distinct entities. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we'll study how God reveals himself more in that capacity later on. But God is revealing himself more, the more unknowns than he's giving us knowns at this point, And he's giving us just enough information to like blow our minds. But it's not long before there comes another transition of God revealing more of himself, when God moves from Elohim, the spirit that is hovering over the watery deep, and Elohim, plural, the trinity, meeting together to contemplate the creation of man to now something more personal in Genesis chapter 2. When the Bible begins to tell the story of the creation of mankind for the first time, we are introduced to the name Yahweh, which is a Hebrew name that was given to God, a God who is deeply personal. So personal, in fact, that the creation account 
takes an interesting twist here. Because before this moment in time, whenever God created anything, Elohim simply spoke it into existence. He said, let there be birds, and boom, there they were, chirping and flying around. He said, let there be dolphins, and bam, there they were, swimming in the ocean. But when it came to us, it was completely different. It is no longer just Elohim, the creator. But now it is Elohim, Yahweh. Still the God of the universe. But now, he doesn't just speak us into existence like he's distant and removed from his creation. It was more intimate than that. As the God of the universe reaches down and from the ground forms the very first man. He created each and every intricate detail. It's like a a potter forming the clay to make his creation. The hands of Yahweh dripped with wet clay as he puts the final touches on the first human But even after the man was formed physically, we still were not in the image of God. It's a very important distinction. We weren't even alive. Man is distinctly different than the rest of creation because it is not until the moment that God himself breathes into man what is called the breath of life that we become alive that we become in the image of God. This is another theological concept that's often referred to as the Imago Dei, that man is created in the image of God. It is the Imago Dei that sets us apart from the rest of creation as it is only man that is created in the image of God. And because of that, we're created with the knowledge of God. We're created with the knowledge of our Creator within our Hearts. That's why 97.5% of us know that there is something more. We can feel it. It's not that we're physically created in the image of God, but that our spirit is created in the image of God. So that when we feel something stirring inside of us, we know it's God that is tugging at my heart. He's within me, and it's this unexplainable belief that I have that I can't explain, it's, but I know in the beginning, God. When I live with the awareness that I am created in the image of God, it changes everything. Who I am and, and what I pursue in my life. Because we were created for something more than just this world. But there comes yet another transition of God revealing himself when the fall of man occurs. And just after they bite into the forbidden fruit, in that moment, sin entered the world and God shows another side of himself to us. And in Genesis chapter 3, it says, The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? 
This certainly implies to me that before sin enters the world, God actually hung out in the garden with Adam and Eve. I don't know for sure, but I get the impression that this was not God's first time walking in the garden in the cool of the day, coming to hang out with his creation. And because there was no sin, there was no separation between us and Yahweh. There seems to be this incredible intimacy between us and God. And so we get this amazing picture of the world without sin. But it doesn't last long. What I do think is this was the first time that God came into the garden and he couldn't find Adam and Eve. I have this idea in my head that every other time God visits them in the garden that Adam and Eve would come running to see their maker. Their Yahweh. Couldn't wait to hang out. But this time would be different. This time they were hiding because the way that they were created, the way that they were designed, they knew right from wrong. They knew what they had done and they were ashamed to face God who had given them everything and yet they took the one thing that he asked them not to. It's crazy, isn't it? Like we're offered this brilliant life in God. And yet we have this amazing capacity to screw up our lives and do what we want to do like we know better than God. We resist the life that God designed for us and for what? Every time we live our lives against God's design, we end up in some dark, desolate And that's why it's called sin. Sin is simply the guidelines that God has put in place to protect us so that we live fully in the design and the way that he created us to live. And so God says in Genesis chapter 3, Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And this never gets old for me. The man said, the woman you put here, not me, you put her here. She gave me some fruit. I guess I was pointing like this in first service. My wife was sitting right there, and so she took that a little personally. But She ate it. Then I ate it. The Lord said to the woman, what is it that you have done? You know, you can almost hear the pain in God's voice as man has broken God's heart for the first time. But it will certainly not be the last. And so in chapter 3, verse 22, it says, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And so the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way 
to the tree of life so that they could never, ever enter back in to the Garden of Eden. And in that moment, there was a chasm that was created between us and God that could never be repaired. Can you imagine that first moment when Adam and Eve walk out of the garden and into the darkness of this wilderness? They had only known the perfection of the garden. And now they would only know the pain and work and loneliness. This would be the last time that they would stand in the presence of their Yahweh until the day that they left this world. And it makes me wonder when I read this, could the Garden of Eden been God's original plan for us all? Could that have been his intention for us to all be together in heaven from the very beginning? Could God have been so optimistic about his creation, who it was that he created, that he believed that none of us would have ever eaten from that tree and we could all live there together in the garden. Right next to the tree of knowledge of good and evil stood the tree of life. And again, this is just speculation, but it certainly implies to me that this could have been the source of eternal life. So what do you do now when the plan breaks down? My speculation here was that when I would go back and read the Hebrew text that when it talks about that God closed off the the Garden of Eden, I fully expected that the name of God would go from Elohim Yahweh back to just Elohim. In other words, I fully expected that God would remove himself from creation in this moment because of this separation that occurred. That he would walk away from us altogether. But instead, it's incredible, but even as God is punishing man for their sin, he maintains his Yahweh-ness. In other words, even in the face of sin, even in the face of escorting them out of the garden, he still loves us. He still wanted to be in relationship. And it had to break his heart to close the door of Eden to see These people walk out into the wilderness knowing that they would be on their own and now figuring out the next step of how to bring it back into place. The rest of the history of God is that. It's God trying to get back what we once had the love, the relationship, the intimacy between us and him. I realize that the older that I get, there is this growing awareness inside of me that what brings fulfillment in my life is not the stuff of this earth. The heart of my joy is found when the winds of heaven begin to blow and I'm in the quiet moment and feeling connected with the God who is the creator of my soul. I also believe 
that on that day, when I meet my maker and I stand before him, I'll be glad to know that he is not only the Elohim, the one who is in control of the universe that I should fear and revere, but that he's also Yahweh, my Yahweh, my God, who in spite of all the things that I've done and all the ways that I've screwed up my life, that he has loved me beyond belief through it all. Because of that, I'm just telling you, I know in my heart, in the beginning, 